0: Um, Before we start today with James, because we're right in the interesting part of James, the part that's raised a lot of eyebrows and spilled a lot of ink and a lot of theological wrangling, somewhat needlessly I would say, before we begin there, let's actually begin with Jesus' words and Jesus' teaching and then see if what James says lines up with it. How's that? I've taught through James probably three or four times, and I've never done this before, uh, but I've always wanted to, because the best way to test a theologian is against the greatest theologian of them all, right? Uh, so let's turn to John chapter 15. Let's hear Jesus speak on the vine and the branches, and then and let's do it let's do a, just a careful analysis of that, and then let's compare it to what, what James says and see if we have any kind of Lutheran heartburn. So let's begin with, uh, like I said, verse 1 of chapter 15. And and I don't think we'll probably need to go any further than verse 8. We can if we like, but just the first 8 verses I think are sufficient. Jesus says, that was a perfect sound effect, (laughs) getting us started off. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Stop right there. Imagine if Jesus' sermon ended like that. What would we conclude? We would have to conclude that Jesus says, "Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away." Therefore, dead in the water. (laughs) uh, We're all dead in the water. If Jesus stopped His sermon right there, it would be the condemnation of us all, because because every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. So it would be my fruit that keeps me in Jesus, and I'd be in big trouble. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Well, that might be consolation to some, but I don't know if it's any consolation to me. Well, mercifully, Jesus doesn't stop there. The next word he speaks, that might, that might actually strike our ears as a word of law. The next words he speaks are words of gospel, <coughs> beginning with verse 3. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. So look what Jesus does. By the word that he speaks, he makes us clean. Now, what word is that, if we think about it, that takes us from a state of uncleanness to cleanness?
1: Verse
0: four. I'm sorry? Verse 4? <laughs> Great. It's a, word of, it's a word of forgiveness, isn't it? Of unity and fellowship with him and with the Father through him. So verse 4, abide in me and I in you. He is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Now verse 6 is the interpretive key for verse 2, isn't it? If you go back to verse 2, Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away. Well, that's concerning, but now look at 6. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. So is the question, what gets you tossed into the fire? Is it a lack of fruit, or is it a lack of abiding in Jesus? Abiding in Jesus. Jesus, The lack of fruit is simply an effect of not abiding in Jesus. So abiding in Jesus is primary. And isn't that the exact thing that he has taught us in the previous verse, in verse 5? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. You see, if you abide, you're going to bear fruit. That's the same with the vine and the branches, if you just think of it agriculturally, right? Um, the only fruitless vine is going to be a vine that has become, de- or I should say the only fruitless branch is a branch that has become detached from the vine. Yes? So is there a difference between being in me and abide Because two is every branch in me. Mm-hmm. Same thing. But those every branch in me that does not bear fruit, but that would be impossible. But right. like in the church in me
2: like as the, who have been baptized and then if
0: they well, that, themselves, that might be an application of it I wouldn't say that's identical to what Jesus is saying but that might be an example of what Jesus is saying yes as Jesus is saying every branch in me it's not abiding in, in him in the same quality is it so it's only abiding temporarily or superficially right and it lacks fruit and it'll be cut off basically it's already dead because though it might cling to him it doesn't abide in him which is the same thing, the example that you were giving And that's why it's a good example
2: Is that sort of like the sower sowing seeds that some of it
0: grows but not the lawn? Sure you could draw that parallel Yeah, you could draw that parallel that, um, as Jesus explains uh, in that parable, some believe for a time and then fall away. Some are in the vine for a time and then fall away, right? Yeah, so Jesus could, you could definitely make that parallel with Jesus' words. So, just picking up with verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, that's the key, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples, or show yourself to be my disciples. So, what is Jesus' point with this teaching? If you want to bear, if you are a branch and you want to bear much fruit, what does Jesus tell you to do? Abide. abide in Him. He is the vine. So as you abide in Him, then you will bear much fruit. Now as you abide in Him and bear fruit, uh, is, it, does Jesus here promise you an easy life? Yeah. No, in fact He promises the opposite. How does He do that in His, in his parable? Pruning. The pruning which would be painful for a branch, which would be a cutting back, which would be counterintuitive. Isn't pruning kind of counterintuitive? I want this thing to be more fruitful, so I'm going to cut it off. (laughs) Sort of counterintuitive, right? I want this thing to be more fruitful, so I'm going to pile more uh, manure around it or something, you know, and try to increase it. I'm not going to decrease it. How do you increase something by decreasing something? It's counterintuitive. But of course, that's how God works with us. It's counterintuitive. So sometimes in our life we're pruned, we don't understand it, we can't fathom it, it hurts, but God is going to utilize that uh, to produce more fruit in our lives. And isn't that true? If you look back on your life, I bet some of the worst moments, some of the most painful moments, some of the moments that changed the course of your life, uh, took your life in a direction that was more fruitful, and took your life in a direction... um, that if you had to do it all over again, you'd do it probably the same way.
1: But he also says,
0: "Any if you abide in him, anything you wish will be granted." Now that, mm-hmm. thats difficult that, too, isn't I it? I don't get that one. Yeah, and not just that, but elsewhere, he—I mean—he says he teaches very explicitly. Whatever you ask in my name, you will receive. So I want a red Ferrari now, in Jesus' name. Where is it? Right. Um, the key is whatever you ask in my name takes us into a theological paradigm, doesn't it? That we're asking that it be within the name of Jesus, within the will of Jesus, within the parameters of that which Jesus himself would want. And that's what he's uh, more explicitly teaching us here because he says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So if we abide in Jesus and if his word abides in us, then when we open up to pray to the Father, what is our word going to be? His word. His Word, And our prayer is going to be his prayer. And we'll receive on that account. So my prayer for a Ferrari, is that really in keeping with Jesus' word? Is it in keeping with Jesus' name? And that's the point. Whatever we ask that's in keeping with his word, that's in keeping with his name, that we shall receive. That's Jesus' promise. Now, like many if not all of Jesus promises they have to be believed so sometimes they're not obvious to our eyes you you may pray that uh, well this is a classic example you may pray that um, Jesus would give you more fruit in your life and the fact of the matter is you may never see it you may never see the increase of fruit because that's actually one of the fruits that he gives Mm -hmm is a blindness to your own increase in fruit so that you don't grow arrogant and haughty, which would be moving in the wrong direction. One of the, one of the beautiful things about what our Lord does is as he sanctifies us, he very often hides that sanctification from us so that we don't become haughty and boastful, so that we don't lose sight of our dependence on him and start trusting in ourselves. So very often in the, li- in the lives of Christians, um, it's an interesting phenomenon, but as we are progressing in sanctification, to use a term that's in our, that's in our uh, Book of Concord, as we're progressing in sanctification, that is, as we're trying to increase and bear much fruit, as Jesus says, our actual experience of that is we experience ourselves not getting better, but getting worse. And why? Because as we bear more fruit, as we become more sanctified, we become more and more aware of our own sin and our own fallenness I, I can recall as a young man thinking what original sin meant and trying to wrap my mind around that and seeing the sin in myself and saying yeah it's there but as I've progressed now uh, you know, in, into being an old man I now, look at, I now can look back and say I had a superficial and shallow view of my own sinful nature the problem is much bigger and much deeper and much more profound than I once thought and, I, and as, I, as I look back and see uh, the maturity of, of my faith as I've grown, I've reflected on myself and said, yes, every turn, every chance I get as I hear Christ's word, as his law speaks to me, I recognize the problem's worse than I've been thinking. <laughs> but then with that comes the gospel, and the solution's greater, and his grace is that much more profound. And the the glory of Christ saving sinners like me sinners like us is more glorious than I had previously recognized or imagined so there's a deepening and a depth but in the lives of Christians they often will say I'm, I'm decreasing in sanctification not increasing and okay well there's circumstances where that might be true and that's a problem but very often that's our experience even when we're actually progressing when God's leading us right along. Okay. Um, but one of the things that I think is most important too is that we ought not uh, be navel gazers, or take it upon ourselves to judge ourselves and our progress. Um, you know, I used to be a tier three Christian. Now I'm a tier ten. Where, where are you, sir? You know, that's kind of a bad attitude, right? Kind of, kind of not, not engendering. A Christ-like attitude of humility, so that even Saint Paul calls himself the chief of sinners, right? And in all of the apostles, you find, uh, while you find an extreme boldness in their confession of the faith, an extreme boldness in their accusation of sin and their application of the gospel, you also find, generally speaking, a great personal humility. That when the magnifying glass gets turned on them, they're confessing, "Well, I'm nothing." Well, I'm unworthy to be called an apostle, but by the grace of God. Well, I'm the chief of sinners. And it's true, isn't it, that uh, God calls, uh, you can see this in the, uh, throughout the scriptures, that God doesn't call the people you'd expect him to call, to serve him. He doesn't call the winners. He doesn't call the moral people. I mean, for crying out loud, uh, think of David, who is a man after his heart, who is also an adulterer and a murderer. Um, Think of Abraham, whom God called. And in fact, that's pertinent because that's exactly the example that James is going to bring up. Abraham was the son of an idol maker. And generally, you follow in your father's footsteps. And Abraham, we see as we look at the course of his life, it's hardly this exemplary life of a saint. I mean, he sells out his wife, I think, twice. And is constantly in danger of falling into unbelief. It's true for all the saints. Noah, no sooner than he's selected and found favor in God's eyes and everything else and he's the new Adam and the new earth is laid before him, what's the first thing he does? Mad dog night. Yeah, he gets drunk and naked and falls back into sin, doesn't he? Um, so you track through the, the Old Testament saints is really a story of, of unlikely people, the least likely people that, God would e- that a holy and righteous God would ever choose To be anything, and yet that's exactly the reason why he chooses them. So that we human beings would say, well, it's not them, it's him. It's not works, it's grace. Right? And the New Testament, it's the very same. Um, You could probably pick a better apostle than one who uh, promises, I'll fight to the death for you, Lord, and in the very same night denies him three times. Under the terrible, demonic, dangerous, threatening authority of a little girl at a gate. Asking, hey, don't you belong to, aren't you one of his disciples? What about uh, St. Paul, who's the preeminent evangelist? What does he do? We read about him in Acts. Holds the coats of those who stone Stephen. And then goes around capturing, infiltrating Christian communities and capturing Christians have them locked up and tried. This is the one whom God chooses then to lead his... Do you see a pattern with God? Uh, He picks... So as we look at ourselves, I think we all find ourselves in that same camp. Um, Unlikely Christians. Unlikely people whom God has chosen and brought into his fold. Unlikely people whom God is using. And so that's part of our... That's part of maturing in the faith too is we see ourselves not as super saints but rather as fallen, broken people and we can't believe that God in his grace has chosen us and is using us but by the grace of God he is it's a wonderful realization so at any rate I I think that um, Christ certainly sets out for us here in this parable or this sermon that we are to increase in abundance and fruit the fact of the matter is one of those fruits is such that it tends to hide our accomplishments from us so that we don't become puffed up and proud. So there, there are some errors, of course, and the error on one extreme is saying it's all about the fruit. Fruit, fruit, fruit. More, more, more. Do, do, do. That's what it's all about. Because Christ says, not that we're to be about abiding in the fruit, but abiding in the vine, in Him. And in fact, if to, pro- it's counterintuitive. If we want to produce more fruit, we don't pay attention to the fruit. We pay attention to Him that's the key, if you want to bear much fruit, abide in me so if we want to be fruitful branches, we bury our noses as it were, right in the vine, and trust that he will produce fruit and that's what he says, uh, he says that you cannot do it of, of your own, for example um, verse 4, abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself Unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So that's the key. So one error is to be all about the fruit, when in fact we should be all about the vine. And then fruit will come. The other error is to say, well, we're not all about the fruit. In fact, fruit are bad and not important, and we shouldn't grow in fruit. Well, that would just be the opposite error, wouldn't it? because Christ here tells us very plainly that he intends for us to bear much fruit okay so any questions on, on what we've covered so far yes
1: answered prayer and requests like Dave asked You know, I think that's always been a puzzle uh, but I see it here a little differently now that it says well if you abide in me and I've always heard that but I didn't hear the other half of that in verse uh, 7 I guess and if my words are in you, then ask. So, to me, that seems to say that I won't ask for anything inconsistent with God's word because God's word is in me. And then so, it's a, you just ask what's consistent with the word of God. Would you think that would be you know?
0: Yes, I think that's true. So you're not going to ask for that
1: red, red Ferrari because we know it's not in God's word to give riches, you know.
0: Right. I, I may pray for my daily needs, but right. yeah, a red Ferrari is not a daily need. Or
1: the salvation of our child, we know that's in God's will, but it, you know, it may not be right now.
0: Ultimately, we ultimately we have to uh, let God be God and that has to be involved in our prayer too. so when we say not my will but thy will be done um, that's ultimately we conform ourselves to God's will so we might pray for example you know, Heavenly Father I know that you desire all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth for that's what you tell me yourself in your word therefore I pray for the salvation of X or Y or Z but at the same time, I know that you are the Lord of all. You are the Father of all. And into your gracious hands, I commend these people. And not my will, but thy will be done. Amen. You know, that Here it would be says,
1: it. it will be granted. Yeah. So, but maybe not immediately.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question, you know. And, and it's a... I mean, ulti- because ultimately, I mean, if we play devil's advocate, and the person... That we're praying for stubbornly rejects and rejects and rejects and rejects. Well, it's not God's will to force them into the into the faith. God doesn't force people in that respect. So then it would have to be God's will, and in praying in accordance with God's will, um, that though He desires all men to be saved, He's not going to force them to be saved. And so there there's the conformity to God's will that says, "You're God, and I can't make that decision, and I can't be the judge." And You know my petition. You know what I would like to see. But it's your will and not mine. So there's a... And when we're talking about the salvation of other people, there's a humility involved there. Um, But there's also passion. You know, Paul says... you remember when Paul says, I think it's in Romans, that he would rather give his own life or his own soul than have his countrymen perish. So it's not to say that we're dispassionate about it. We're very passionate about it. But in our prayers, we also have to acknowledge that God has a relationship with that person and while I can assert my what I would desire, um, ultimately it's between God and that person. That's what I meant by like, we have to let God be God. Okay, um, yes?
2: Mike, are talking about um, our, our situation looking more realistic to us as we grow, realizing the situation a lot worse than we originally thought. Um, it seems to me that just with that perspective, fruit that is produced is put in a whole other light so that in perspective of how frail and dependent we are that you can see the fruit and, and you need to because it's encouraging. You see growth. Whereas if my life was filled with you know debauchery and <laughs> such, um, I would be very discouraged and it would be obvious that there was no fruit. And so I think that when you say we're blind to the fruit, it's more like the fruit is put in perspective. Mm-hmm. We bear more fruit, but at the time we're more, at the same time, we're more humble. Mm-hmm. Because we realize that um, where our situation is. Yes, you know, even We see our sin, but yet um, we, we bear fruit. But because we see our sin, there's nothing to be proud of and boast of.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Because yes. we can't help when you see what a pit you're in and that you're
0: waiting for that salvation still at the same time. Yes. So if you take the classic example of of David and his circumstances with Bathsheba and then hiding his sin and Uriah and everything else and then after Nathan comes and tells him the parable and he says that man deserves to die uh, and David unwittingly is assigning his own death sentence because of what he's done. If we were to fit that into Jesus' teaching, David was would be saying that branch deserves to be cut off, and he was speaking of himself. So then, immediately recognizing that, he repents, right, and he is forgiven. In other words, he's brought back into the vine, and he begins to grow and be fruitful again. And so that, in a picture, is what we see over and over in the lives of the saints and in our lives. Is um, there may be times where we're, uh, I mean, where we're always while while we're abiding in the vine, we're still sinful, and I think that that's what Jesus is getting at, though, with uh, verse three: "Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you." You know, He's speaking to His disciples who are sinners, but He's saying, "Look, you're cl- you're clean, and you're in, and you're abiding in Me because of the word that I've spoken into you." Now remain in Me. Remain. Now, what David did was did not remain and went down a different path and ended up going away from, not abiding in the vine and then ended up pronouncing judgment on himself, this branch deserves to be cut off and yet even then God has mercy on him so just because a branch deserves to be cut off or is cut off for a time doesn't mean that God won't be merciful, doesn't mean that God won't (coughs) place that branch back on, that's always possible yes
1: could the, the pruning in David's case be the death of the child?
0: yes, I think you're exactly right I think you're exactly right, that's that's just the kind of tragedy that produces fruit, and it's bizarre to us, you know um but it produces fruit too in other people because you see that with uh those the advisors in the court that surround David. remember they're so perplexed by his behavior because after he's uh reconverted or reattached to the vine as it were and um, recognizes his sin he's uh Praying fervently for his son, remember, and rolling around in sackcloth and ashes, and not eating anything and everything else, which is sort of strange behavior because that's what you would do when someone dies, not when someone's still alive. While they're still alive, you would eat and drink, and you know you'd pray and you'd be on your knees and everything else, but you'd you'd take care of yourself. You wouldn't act as though they were dead, and that's how David's acting. And then as soon as his son dies, remember what David does. Immediately cleans himself up and puts on fresh clothes and sits down to eat instead of mourning and rolling around and all the. And uh, the, the court, the advisors are stunned by his behavior. And they ask a reason for this. And, and you remember uh, David's confession of faith. It's so, it gives us such profound hope with our children as well. But he says, I know that I will re- uh, my son will not return to me, but I will return to him. So his hope is that his son is saved, that God has saved him. His hope is that he knows his son is with the Lord and that he will be with the Lord and therefore with his son one day also. Now what's so profound about that narrative is his son dies on what day? Prior to his circumcision. Uh, prior to the eighth day. So he's not circumcised, so he's not brought into... So. Here's the question in our day of what of the ba- what of the child who is not baptized, who dies before baptism? And what does David say? My son will not return to me, but I will return to him. In other words, there's a confession of faith there that God has saved this child and that God has established a relationship with this child. And of course, David very much believed that. Um, in Psalm 22, well, many of his psalms, you knit me together in my mother's womb, and in Psalm 22, you, uh, you, you caused me to trust while on my mother's breast. That's preceding baptism. That's preceding circumcision. So um, anyway, we gain wonderful fruit from that pruning that the father did to David. And it's also true that I think in some of the worst failures of the saints... I gained more from them than some of the greatest successes, right? It's kind of why we've said, thank God, I mean, we've all probably secretly thought, thank God Thomas doubted, because I gained more from his doubt than from all the other apostles confessing and believing, and why that is, is because you get to see how the Lord treats doubt, you get to see that he is truly flesh and blood, Thomas says, my Lord and my God, and Jesus doesn't chastise him and say, no, we're Jehovah's Witnesses, he says, he receives that worship. Um, so you gain so much fruit even out of that and so it's evidence also of not only of a God who prunes but of a God who now we're confusing parables but uses uh, the manure that we go through to grow us and make us more fruitful you remember the parable of uh, the fig tree that won't produce fruit and the farmer's about to cut it down and uh, the vineyard worker Intercedes on behalf and promises to dig around it and put manure on it and it'll bear fruit and if it doesn't bear fruit well and good, cut it down but let me work on it. It's a parable about exactly what Jesus does for us. Isn't it? Digs around in our roots. Kind of hurts. Puts manure on it. Kind of stinks. But in the end, he ends up saving us. Anyway, so Jesus is... Uh, into the agricultural metaphors, no doubt. And we'll see the James is too by the end of his epistle. But why I wanted to begin here is because what Jesus does for us is in many places Jesus shows us the distinction between the question of good works and the question of uh, faith, right? Or sanctification and justification. In many places Jesus teaches, you know, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And Jesus basically says everything. And if you can't do it, you should probably look for a plan B, right? And the plan B is his grace and his mercy and that he has done everything for us, right? So that would be an example of the distinction between justification and sanctification, between faith and good works, right? But here in this teaching, Jesus shows that while there's a distinction between the two, they're also part of an organic whole. They also flow and work together. You know, we may have two sides of the same coin, but it's still a coin we're talking about. We may have a a vine and fruit, but the vine and the fruit are still part of one organism, one tree. Right? So what Jesus is showing us is that the, the relationship of abiding in him, that's what we would call justification or faith, right? Follows through organically, naturally into sanctification and good works. And those two are connected. And that's what Jesus is showing us. Now, that's exactly, if you understand what James is showing us, he's going to teach us the very same thing. That faith and works are connected. That abiding in the vine and producing fruit can't be separated one from another. And like, as we've been talking about, how God chooses unlikely people, we're going to see James do the very same thing. He's going to choose uh, uh, Abram, who who we've already mentioned, and he's going to choose... Rahab, a prostitute. Who also Rahab, Rahab is an interesting name and it has an interesting uh, uh, use, in, use in the scriptures because it t- sometimes Rahab becomes representative for God's people in a positive light and sometimes in a negative light. And Rahab also becomes uh, a nickname uh, for like Egypt and the the evil forces, the rebellious forces. And Rahab, of course, you re-meet Rahab in the New Testament right off the bat in... Matthew, genealogy. the genealogy of Jesus. Yeah, Rahab um, is the harlot, remember? She lives in Jericho or in, in Canaan. Uh, and uh, as they come in to infiltrate, um, she helps the spies, remember? So she's the, she's the harlot who is justified by her faith, and her faith shows itself forth in actions, faithfulness. And so anyway, James chooses these two unlikely characters as his proof text for how faith and good works work together. All right, so into James. And we we, uh, got through verse 13 last week, so let's jump into verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works. Can that faith save him? Now the answer is going to be, for James, is going to be no, because that faith isn't actually faith at all. And that's his point. Now here's this example. If a brother or a sister, now this would be language for a Christian, Okay, if a brother or a sister is poorly clothed, which might be a pious way of putting it, I mean, we should really rather say here, destitute, naked, Um, about to die from the elements and lacking in daily food that is starving not making it and one of you says to them go in peace be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body what good is that now while, while this is certainly a rebuke and an accusation as we talked about last week an accusation of essentially you're murdering your brother um yeah, chapter two, verse fourteen. Verse 14. I'm following. Mm-hmm. Um, look at look at look at the analogy. There's more than meets the eye. He's doing more than just scolding Christians who would do this. The idea is that you're saying one thing and doing something totally different. You see the point? You're saying go in peace, be warmed and filled, and then what are your actions? Completely incompatible with that. <laughs> your actions are continue starving and dying of exposure. So what you're saying and what you're doing don't line up. So, so we see uh, James showing us then what he says explicitly in verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now that's the key. That's the key interpretive point to, to recognizing what James is talking about because he's going to use faith and what he actually means is faith that is not faith. Faith that is dead faith. And that's where everyone gets confused on this. Okay, so verse 18. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Then he says, Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Okay? So someone tries to make the distinction. This is his rhetorical example. Someone tries to make the distinction here, faith is over here and it's one thing and I've got it and works are over here and it's another thing and you've got it. In other words, they've taken the whole uh, I am the vine, you are the branches and the fruit and they've chopped it right in the middle and they've separated the two as if they have nothing to do with each other, right? And to refute that, James says, show me your faith apart from your works. And you actually can't do it, can you? Because if you say all these things, and then don't do them then you just prove yourself to be a hypocrite it's no different than saying uh, be warmed and, and well fed and then you do nothing that would be hypocritical right so show me your faith without your works you can't actually do it so he says show me your faith apart from your works and then here's his rhetorical comeback and I will show you my faith by my works by my works So faith manifests itself in work. And and then to tie this in with what we might say with Jesus, abiding in the vine produces fruit. Show me that you abide in the vine and don't have any fruit. We would recognize that Jesus never says that that can be. If you abide in, in the vine, you will bear fruit, he says. So James says, look, I will show you my faith. I will show you that I abide in the vine by my fruit, by my works. So faith and works here are connected organically, we might say. They're one whole. They're one thing. Then here he says in verse 19, now look at how this is a, parable, a parallel statement to go in peace, be warmed and well filled. Okay, You believe that God is one, which is the old Shema of Israel. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right, So that was one of the earliest creedal statements, uh, going all the way back to the Old Testament. And As we've said, James' congregation seems to be a Jewish congregation by and large. So they believe that God is one, and they take that's their creed, and that's what they say. And he says, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. In other words, what you say with your lips is so far away from what your heart is and what you're doing. This, this, just, this just in. just in. And it, shake it and we'll yeah. be upset. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's a relic of St. Peter. was. <laughs> <No. laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so I'm sorry for the interruption. So in other words, it, you, you believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. And what he's saying is, look, even the demons can make the superficial confession that you make. I mean, even a demon could say, go in peace, be warmed and filled, and then not do it. Um, you can make the confession that God is one without believing in him whatsoever, without actually trusting in him, without actually having a living faith, without actually having a faith that produces good fruit. You see the point? Um, so, So the fact that the demons believe in God, they know God to be true, they know that God is one, and they shudder. But here the implication is that these Christians are so confident that they don't shudder they don't shudder even though they have reason to shudder and that reason would chiefly be that they are despising the poor in their midst and honoring the rich despising the poor here in this previous example as we mentioned by not giving them the things they need for their body but then in the previous section earlier in chapter 2 we saw despising the poor by giving them the, poor pla- the, the uh, uh, lesser place in the assembly And inviting the rich man, the rich one, to sit in a better place in the assembly or other such preference. So, walk and
2: talk have to go hand
0: in hand. Yeah. 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 And exactly the way that Christ talks about abiding abiding in the vine and producing fruit. The two go hand in hand. You can't take take them away from each other. So far, James has pretty much done the same thing as Jesus does, right? Mm -hmm. Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person? Imagine hearing that in the sermon. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what these were. These were sermons. Uh, Paul says the same thing. You, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, right? So there's there's a place for, uh, you know, sharp words in the mouths of the prophets. The Holy Spirit Himself using these sharp words. You foolish person. That faith apart from works is useless. Now, faith apart from works here, as we've taught, is faith that is no faith, faith that is dead. That's what James is talking about. So he's not talking about the faith apart from the works that Paul's talking about. That would be a living faith. Here, James is talking about a faith that is no faith, a faith that is dead. And we saw that just earlier in this section, didn't we? In verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? And the answer is no, because that faith is no faith. That faith is dead faith. So also then here in this verse, he says, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And his point is that faith apart from works is no faith, is dead faith. Um, If you have no fruit, then it's because you're not abiding in the vine in Jesus' language. Okay, then verse 21, here's, here's what he brings up. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the <coughs> altar? Now, go back to Abraham. Remember when he was converted by God prior to his circumcision, prior to Isaac being born, all the way back, God made promises to Abraham. Abraham believed in God and it was credited to Abraham as righteousness. Right? So God has already imputed Abraham with righteousness. He's filled Abraham with faith. Abraham is righteous in God's sight. And then when God asks that he would sacrifice Isaac, his son, the one through whom all of God's promises was going to come true, um, the one through whom uh, the Messiah was to be born, Abraham demonstrates his faith by going through with it, doesn't he? Right up to the point where the angel has to stop his hand from plunging down into Isaac's chest. So Abraham is justified by works when he offers up his son. Why? Because how would it be if if Abraham believed in God or said he believed in God and then when God said, okay, you believe in me, now I want you to sacrifice Isaac and Abraham said, no. Well, that wouldn't be any belief at all. There wouldn't be any faith at all, and uh, I don't want to take us down the rabbit trail. But if you go and look at that story of Abraham, it's a story of amazing faith, really, and the faith is hidden in the details. For example, after when they when they're traveling to the mountain, as they get to the base of the mountain and they're about to head up, Abraham and Isaac. Do you remember what Abraham turns and says to the men who are waiting there?
2: We.
0: Will be we as far as Abraham knows he's going to go up and kill his son but God has made the promise that the seed will come through that boy so Abraham has no doubt in his mind that God's going to have to resurrect him God's going to have to bring him back from the dead because God cannot lie so we will return he says so Abraham's faith shows itself in action does that make sense All right. so then, in verse twenty two you see that faith was active along with his works. that's living faith, and faith was completed by his works that it was fulfilled was shown to be true verse twenty three and the scripture was fulfilled that said Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness and that's the verse we were talking about that precedes all of this It precedes Abraham's circumcision it precedes everything. The verse was fulfilled, in other words. Uh, he proved himself that he did have faith, that his faith was living, when that faith had to enact itself out in reality, in real life, and that's what we're called to do continuing with verse uh, 23 and he was called, Abraham was called a friend of God now if you look uh, later on in that section that we were just in with Jesus in John 15 he goes and makes the same claim no longer do I call you servants. For a servant does not know his master's business, but now I call you friends. You see, it's, James, James may well have had our Lord's words in the back of his mind as he was going through this section. So then, verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the point is that faith alone wouldn't actually be faith. Faith alone, the way James is thinking about it, would be faith that is dead, faith that is just words, faith that is no actions. So if you understand that that's what James is saying, now you see no contradiction between what he and Paul are saying. right? Because his, what he means as faith alone is faith that is no faith at all. Yes? So if someone is concerned um, because they
2: don't see their words?
0: Yes. I would point them to Christ. To Christ. Yeah, which <laughs> is which is the same thing as, as having them abide not to in Christ. Exactly. Yes, you're right. Not to go do more. Because, you know, it's one thing um, if you see the fruit of the. At times, God allows us to see the fruit and work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and at times we can see the course of our lives and we can say, God has done wonderful things for me, right? And it's a it's a further testament and evidence. That God has given us faith, that we are His children, and there's scriptures that speak this way. But at times uh, Satan blinds us and strips us of that. Or at times Satan so confuses us that to make that confession, it would be to boast in ourselves and not in God. And it's at times like those that when we have to forego any confession of works or fruits or anything else, and we simply have to go straight back to the vine. And as a pastor, that means I would point someone outside of themselves. I would point someone's attention away from their fruit and point their attention right back to Christ. And we as Christians have to always do that as Satan attacks us, as our own old Adam tempts us to look at ourselves and look at our good works and boast in those. We always have to say, no, I need to turn my face away from the fruit and look back to the vine that is Christ. Or another way of saying it is, I need to stop looking at myself and look outside of myself to Christ, and that's what the Word and sacraments do. The Word and sacraments are outside of us and independent of us, so at the end of the day, whether you say fruit or no fruit uh, i'm worried about it i ha- i don't don't have enough, I may have enough i don't know. Um, you need to be turned away from fruit, back to the vine, turned from looking inside to looking outside. And then that's where the word and sacraments come and say, this is what God has done for you, apart from you, outside of you, and that's why you can be certain in it. Right? Baptism was done to you. So it doesn't matter if you have works or not works, if you're measuring up in the fruit, you know, um, weighing department, it doesn't matter. You were baptized, it was done to you. Right? It's outside of you. It's something God has completed, and therefore anything that you've done or not done doesn't render that in, void or invalid. That baptism holds. And the same is true with, uh, with uh, our Lord's words when he comes to us in his supper. says, for you, for your forgiveness. At that point in time, he isn't interested. Fruit, no fruit, worthy of burning, not worthy of burning. He's simply saying, for you. And there in the sacrament, is as if the, it's as if the vine himself were pouring in everything that is him into the branch, right? And filling that branch with his life, which is the very thing he does in the sacrament when he gives us his body and blood to eat. He gives you himself, just as the vine gives itself into the branch and all of the life goes with it and then flowers forth in fruit. So Christ gives you himself, his body and blood, into you, his living branches, and flowers forth fruit in your lives as well.
2: I would think that you could encourage somebody, too, if they're looking at their life and they're seeing how pitiful it is and stuff, but you could point out that the fruit of repentance and, you know, of receiving um, God's gift, and it, in other words, indicating their faith and repentance, is fruit in itself.
0: Yes, you're so right. And Yes, that's the devil's question, isn't it? So you you yeah. go back to the colonel and say,
2: but I see a repentant heart in me, and seeing yes. see me wanting to go to God for mercy, that's fruit. Yes. You can be encouraged.
0: Yes, so you're exactly right. And so this is one of the ways that the Lutheran theologians, our Lutheran fathers talk about it, is they talk about a difference, and it's kind of a, it's kind of a fine distinction, but it's really great if you grasp it. It's difference between works of the law and fruits of the Spirit. Okay? Now, outwardly, a work of the law and a fruit of the Spirit might be, this, might be the same thing. right? Outwardly, they might have the same appearance. Okay? So, for example, um, one child is very obedient to his parents, and another child is very obedient to his parents. And you look on the outside and you say they're the same thing. Right? They're the same thing. Then you look a little, a little closer, and one child is obedient to his parents, because if he doesn't, he's going to get a spanking, and if he does, he's going to get a cookie. The other child is obedient to his parents, not because he's worried about a spanking or a cookie, but because he loves his parents, and he does the right thing naturally. In that example, we would say fruit of the Spirit. In the previous example, we would say work of the law. You see? Yeah, so so you've you've put your finger right on it that what, what James is talking about is fruits of the Spirit. And fruits of the Spirit, as soon as you try to measure them in the satanic way of measuring them, he tries to change fruits of the spirit into a work of law. Now Satan's always doing this, trying to confuse law and gospel, trying to confuse gifts and liability and judgment. So what he does is he says, oh, so you have fruits of the spirit, let's see if you have enough. Or let's see if you have the right kind. Or let's see if you are selfless enough. Or he's always analyzing. He does the same thing with faith, right? Which is a gift of God and a good gift of God and a fruit that God gives to us, a fruit of the new man that God puts in us. And so what does Satan immediately do with that, with that faith? He says, oh, you believe in God? Let's, let's judge that fruit by the law, by the first commandment. So you fear love and trust in God above all things? Oh, you don't, do you? Well, then you must not have faith. You see, what he's done is confused, and he does it intentionally, confused the fruit of the Spirit with the work of the law so that he can bring you back in bondage to the threats of the law. So that's a great point, and it's something that we uh, that comes out of this as we study this text. We realize James is talking about fruits of the spirit. It's fruit of the
2: spirit, There's others besides those. happens
0: to be the kernel. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yes. Well, and that's and that's a great point you brought up too. Now he, Paul gives those examples of the fruit of the spirit in Galatians, right? right. And and that's exactly right. But as is his way, Paul isn't giving us an an exhaustive, systematic list. These are the fruit of the Spirit, no more, no less, Mm -hmm. right? He's giving us examples of what they are. Annette, another point that you brought out that I just thought was so profound and so right is the way we define good works, the way we think about fruits of the Spirit, is sometimes we think about them in very specific ways. Like we think of a good work as that one time I served in the soup kitchen. Or uh, that one old lady I helped walk across the street, that was a good work. Or that one time I suffered an insult from that terrible person and didn't lash back at them, that was a good work. We think of good works as like these very specific uh, things, and um, a, a, what a, it's, such a, it's a much more profound good work to confess our sins. And we don't even think of that as a good work. It's such a profound good work to simply come to church on Sunday morning and receive God's gifts, listen to his word, and, uh, and receive his sacraments. That is a profoundly good work. And we don't even think about that as a good work. It is a good work to simply do the tough, nasty job of being a husband or a wife, or a mom or a dad, or a child, or a citizen, or all the vocations that God has given us, that is a, those, are, those are great works those are works that God himself has ordained that God himself has written into creation that God himself has written into his works and when we look for fruit we don't think about those things but that's what fruit is and see, so there's our problem, too, is, is sometimes we try to define fruit or we think about fruit in this abstract way of like, well, I've got to be a Boy Scout or I've got to do, you know, these things that actually aren't, are, I mean, while they're good fruit, it's, not, it's, like, it's like you're plucking a grape instead of looking at this huge plethora, this huge cornucopia of, of other fruit that God has given you to do and that God has called you into in your life. So um, remember, I think this comes from John chapter 5, Remember, I think it's five, maybe it's six, sorry. Um, But remember when um, the people say, uh, teach us what we must do to do the works of God. Do you remember Jesus' answer? Believe. Believe. Simply believing, which is the same we would say as receiving and trusting in the gifts that God gives us, that is the work of God. That is the fruit, if you will, according to Jesus. So when we think of the fruit... Uh, so often we, so often um, when we think about fruits of the spirit, we 're not even thinking about the right thing. And when we go to weigh and assess ourselves uh, whether we have the fruits, we 're not even thinking the right thing. we 're thinking of the, the things that might look good on a resume. Uh, or the things that you know, uh, an employer might be interested in, or that might make for good dinner conversation, or that might make other Christians take notice of us in our ministry, when in, in effect uh, the fruits of the spirit are actually so much deeper, bigger, and more profound than that. So thank you for bringing that up. That's another great point. Another great point.
2: I'm glad I stirred you on. Yeah. It's a great thought. <laughs>
0: Okay, so let's go on to uh, Rahab. Verse 25. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute. Now, if James is, as the Roman Catholics say, trying to teach us a doctrine of how we are justified through good works and how we are uh, welcomed into heaven on the basis of our good works, why on earth is James bringing up such notorious sinners, but particularly Rahab? And then not just Rahab, but look what he calls her. Rahab the prostitute. Like he, like he couldn't spell it out more that the point isn't that she's this good holy person that God was like, wow. Okay, she is Rahab the prostitute. But she believed and her genuine faith worked itself out in concrete things. So, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? So we would say yes, we would say Rahab's faith showed itself active and living in the work that she did. Otherwise, if she would have claimed to have faith and then let the spies get caught, we would say that's no faith at all. That's faith that's hypocritical. That's faith that's dead. That's faith that's word and not deed. Okay. Then here he gives us one final analogy or example. For as the body apart from the spirit or the soul is dead, and that's that's the, his point. His point's not some deeper like Holy Spirit type thing. His point is just you got a dead, you got a corpse that's separated from the soul. Okay. So also faith apart from works is dead. So the point is um, the body apart from the soul is as faith apart from works. In other words faith that doesn't work is a corpse. That's what it is. And that that is the final salvo of James so that we now understand that when he talks about this faith alone, he's talking about faith that is a corpse. Faith that is no faith at all. And now we see him not in disagreement with St. Paul in any way, when Paul teaches that we are justified by faith apart from works, but totally in keeping with St. Paul. That faith apart from works for James is no faith at all, uh, in the sense that it is, it is uh, dead, like a dead body, devoid of the soul or devoid of the spirit. Yeah. Okay. Yes. because of the specific situation, James.
2: James. they saying this to the people.
0: Yes. Yes, that, that's the idea is that James is bringing this up what is, what is most likely happening and this is where James later, or Luther later in his life warms up to James very famously Luther said James is an epistle of straw and I don't think much of it and it's got, it's got some admonitions in it and that's it well later in his life Luther changed his, his song a little bit about James and do you want to know what changed Luther's opinion? Luther had to deal with a group of people who were antinomians and what they did was they used their faith in Christ as an excuse to do no good works at all. So that instead of doing good works, they would say, well, I'm justified in, in Christ by faith alone apart from works, so you can't make me do anything, so I'm not going to do anything, I'm free. Which is exactly what Luther found in James was happening. People were saying, oh, I believe in God, I believe that he's one. Uh, but take care of my neighbor who's naked and starving? No, I'm not going to do that, I don't have to do that, I'm forgiven in Christ. And so, so they would, it's as Paul, it's, it's as Paul puts it, um, they would go on sinning so that grace might abound. And in fact, they'd use grace as their excuse for lewdness and licentiousness. And Peter speaks against that too. But you find that in yourself once in a while, as I do. And you find that in other Christians once in a while. But you find this uh, weird twisting so that the gospel itself is the very thing used against good works. Or the gospel itself is used as the very excuse not to help someone right even even God's word, even you know, I hate this uh so so I don't want to give a specific example. I'll make one up so um someone is someone is doing something uh we're talking about Christians here, and someone is doing something abusive to another person, okay. And you come and you say, look, you need to stop this abusive behavior. It's not right. It's not good. You're hurting this person. You're hurting yourself. You need to repent and be forgiven. person says, well, we're all sinners. Yeah, well, that's a true statement. We're all sinners. But look how that true statement is being used as an excuse to go on doing the abusive behavior. You see? So it is, there's a hypocrisy that masquerades under the word of God And that is antinomianism. That is licentiousness. That is, I'll do whatever I darn well please, and I'm going to use God's word in theology as the very thing to support me acting totally contrary to God's will. And so that's what Luther was running up against. And that's where he warmed up to James because he realized that in James' congregation he's dealing with the same thing. He's dealing with people who are making their confession in Christ and their confession in God who is one and they're using this as their excuse so that they don't have to clothe or feed their brother or sister who's naked or starving. They simply say, well, we're all sinners. Well, I believe in God who justifies the ungodly and I'm ungodly, so thank God I've got forgiveness. right? But then they don't lift a finger. And James is pointing that out. That's hypocrisy. That's no faith. That's faith that's dead. That's murder. And ultimately it's adultery against God himself. And that's all kind of hearkening back to the previous section. Okay, so Luther ends up warming up to James, and I hope we can see why, because James ends up teaching nothing different than what Jesus teaches in John 15 about uh, he being the vine, we the branches, and bearing much fruit. Any questions or comments as we close up for today? Good. I hope so. I love James, I think he's great. He's, he's, the, misunderstood, he's the misunderstood apostle, you know. Um, Next week, we'll go into uh, taming the tongue. We already mentioned that a little bit in a preceding chapter. Here, John has woven together another bit for us, and we'll discuss that next week. The Lord be with you.